Okay, so welcome everyone to Investing for Generational Wealth. Let us dive into the world of expert financial insights and strategies. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer, as always, uh, we're not financial advisors. All investments are subject to risk, including possible loss of the money you invest. So perform your due diligence before making any financial decisions. And of course, consult your CPA, your attorney before making and beginning any investments. I'm your host today, John Lai, and welcome to today's episode, Investing Out of State. And today's guest is Jennifer Beatles. Jennifer is a seasoned real estate investor with an impressive 16-year track record. I'm not going to go on and on because uh, she has a, a great presentation and she'll uh, talk a little bit about herself, but she has a wealth of information, including investment strategies such as Burr, uh, Value Add Multi-Family, uh, Built to Rent. Uh, I'd be interested to know uh, what class, asset class you're uh, most fond of, um, but she is the CEO of Door Profit, and Jennifer is dedicated to addressing challenges to uh, and of individual investors, uh, of they, what, who, uh, what they often encounter when expanding into new markets. And so with that, thanks for being here with us, Jennifer. Um, I gave a bit of background and your experiences, but could you provide more detail on your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. Um, thrilled to be here. I um, um, There's a lot of different topics that I can talk on related to investing. Uh, as John had mentioned, I've kind of done most everything that one can do, <laughs> particularly with uh, you know, residential multifamily investing. Um, and so, yeah, so as John has mentioned, I've been doing it for about 16 years. I do have a couple slides that kind of go into maybe some of the specifics, but really, guys, I'm here just to add value to you. Um, I, we, we were all beginners at one point. I was a beginner, um, at 21 years old, did not know a thing uh, about what I was doing, made a lot of mistakes. I'm actually going to share some of those mistakes with you guys today, because I would love to help you on your journey and not have you re repeat the same mistakes that I did. So I'm hoping if, if anything, maybe you guys just won't, uh, repeat some of those early mistakes. So, um, yeah, just really, again, here to add value, um, answer questions as you guys have questions and hope to kind of maybe demystify and de-risk um, the idea of investing out of state. So if we're good, John, can I get to um, the slide? Is that good? good? Go. Perfect, excellent. Let's see if I can do the share screen. I think I've got a hit slideshow. All right, so, okay. Um, as uh, just a couple things before we get started. John had already shared some of this, but I'm gonna reiterate. Um, so guys, I'm just sharing my experience in building an out-of-state real estate portfolio. As John mentioned, this is not investment or legal advice. Um, also, as John mentioned, real estate can be very, very risky. So you always, always need to perform your own due diligence. Um, I'm, I kind of have the saying, it's like trust, but verify. Um, and then also specifically out-of-state investing is not for the meek of heart. It does require hard work, a lot of networking and due diligence. Um, I'm going to give you guys some case study examples just because I want to demonstrate uh, kind of what's available in other markets. I think a lot of you are all mostly from the Pacific Northwest, um, so you probably have your frame of reference of what properties cost in the area that you live. And so I find case study examples kind of to be helpful to just kind of demonstrate and show you what um, is possible in other markets. But they're really for illustrative purposes only. I'm not pitching anything today. These properties are not for sale. I actually don't even do syndication. So um, just, yeah, just for examples only. Um, also, please interrupt me and ask questions. Um, in order for you to get the most value out of our time together today, I would love for you to ask questions um, so I can answer them while I'm here. 
Um, so happy to happy to do that. So, all right, a little bit about who I am. Uh, this is a photo of the three of us, my husband and my eight-year-old daughter, Dylan. This is us in uh, the Philippines, actually, this summer. Um, so I am originally from the Pacific Northwest, currently living my best uh, life in Arizona. Uh, so I lived, gosh, 36 years in the Pacific Northwest, and then uh, we kind of left for better weather. So we're now living in Arizona. Um, I've also had multiple careers in real estate. Uh, spent a past life, I uh, was a real estate developer north of Seattle, doing a lot of build to rent, a lot of spec home building as well. Um, and then I'm also a real estate broker, been a broker for about 15 years. Uh, for a short period of time, we had a contracting business. Um, I'm also a coach and then a startup CEO at Door Profit. And I'm going to give you guys some uh, tools today as well for that. Um, started investing in real estate in 2007, and then I went full-time two years later. So I've been at this for a, quite a long time. Uh, we have properties in nine different states. So Washington, Idaho, Arizona, Indiana, Texas, Tennessee, Missouri, Michigan, and Kentucky. And this list is always growing. Um, also, we only do long-term buy and hold investing, so don't ask me questions about short-term rentals or uh, vacation properties. We don't do that. <laughs> I know nothing about it. So I'm not here to teach you about anything that I don't know. Um, also, something that's a little bit kind of unique about our family is we also traveled uh, about four months out of the year. So because we live in Arizona, we escape the extreme summer heat. And then we pretty much take, uh, again, another uh, about month and a half, two months going to different places. My eight-year-old has been to 31 different countries. And this is all relevant. The reason why I tell you this, not to, to brag or to hope to impress you, but to impress upon you that we have this portfolio that is highly profitable, but we still have the time freedom. Because I think my hope and my expectation is everyone on this call is hoping to further their um, you know time freedom and net worth and positive income streams through investing. And so I just want to show you what's possible in doing that. Um, also, most of my properties I have never seen in person. Okay. So this is a bit shocking <laughs> for a lot of investors that I come across. Um, and so I'm going to kind of, as we get into some of the case studies and as we get into the content today, I'm going to kind of explain a little bit more about why that is. Um, and then also, um, so we, we are heavily invested in real estate, but between the three of us, my, my daughter has two businesses. My husband has a few businesses of his own, but we have 10 businesses between the three of us. So, yep, we are a little crazy. Um, and then I was going to say, what businesses does your daughter have? <laughs> yeah, so she has an e-commerce business. Oh, cool. And um, she recent, recently launched a uh, hot cocoa in the Arizona colder month business That's and great. a lemonade stand. So when we are home, she is pitching to the neighbors, door knocking and getting them to buy her stuff. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. Um, and then her e-commerce is, is actually like crushing it as well. Um, so and then also we earn about seven figures in and I should say about multiple seven figures in annual recurring revenue. And we pay less than ten thousand dollars a year in taxes. So, again, our real estate uh, really allows us to maximize the, uh, basically the amount of money that we keep in our pocket. So anyway, some just fun things. All right, so here's what we're gonna cover today. 
Um, number one is this concept uh, that I consider to be low friction lifestyle investing. I'm going to do a little deeper dive on that. Um, and the next we're going to talk about why we chose to invest out of state. I'm going to give you the three steps to out of state investing. So for those of you that are still around after the first two and you are really considering getting into out of state investing, um, I'm going to give you really just the three steps that you need to take. Um, I'm also going to answer the big uh, elephant in the room question, which is, okay, well, where should I be investing and what considerations um, kind of come up when determining where to invest? Um, and then we're going to talk about building a team, a remote team. Um, my favorite types of properties, John, you'd ask this kind of at the beginning. Uh, happy to share that with you guys. Um, some common mistakes that I see investors make and that I've made myself. Um, and then we're going to touch on acquisitions on autopilot. Again, I have some really unique ways of creating deal flow, uh, getting deals coming and hitting my inbox every single day so that I'm not always, you know, spending a lot of time on acquisitions. And then we're also going to touch on operations on autopilot. So how we're able to leave and travel for four months out of the year, yet have all of these various uh, businesses and of course the real estate running. So, and I think we're going to get that we've got 44 minutes. So <laughs> I'm going to move a little fast, but again, happy to answer questions as we, as we go. All right. So first, like, what is this low friction lifestyle investing about? So really this aims to minimize the impact of owning investment real estate on a person's life. So for me, the, pur the entire purpose of investing is to improve your life. We do not want, I do not want to see any investors getting into investing and then finding themselves more stressed out with less time freedom. And then of course, I don't want anyone buying properties that are cash flow negative, right? That is, that is uh, the absolute opposite that we're going for here. And the reason why I'm starting with this is I just want you all to know kind of my perspective. Um, it may align or Maybe it, it doesn't align. Um, I know a few investors that really like the heavy lift, um, really like to be, you know, self-managing and doing all of the things. That is not our approach. So I just wanted to put that out there before we get in. Um, so what that translates to, that means that we're investing in B-class areas. Okay. So, um, and actually, oh, this is probably my first time speaking to this group. So I'll, I'll just very quickly uh, describe uh, an analogy that I have for the class of areas. So if we're thinking about areas, um, I want you to think about, so A-class properties, that's where you're gonna find the neighborhoods with the Whole Foods uh, grocery stores, okay? So B-class is probably gonna be like your Target. C-class is gonna be neighborhoods where you'd find the Walmart. And then D-class is gonna be like your Dollar General, right? <laughs> I hope that that's a helpful analogy to kind of right. understand um, you know, what these class of neighborhoods are. Um, we want to be attracting tenants that stay and pay. Okay. So vacancy is very expensive when it comes to owning uh, investment properties. So we want to always be optimizing um, our occupancy, meaning that tenants are in these units. And then of course, we want to make sure that they're paying. Okay. So um, this is really, really, really important to this low friction lifestyle investing. Uh, also minimal drama, right? So we don't want to be dealing with tenants that are high drama where we've got, uh, I have a lot of friends in real estate investing and, you know, they have like, you know, fist fights at their complexes and they've got, 
a lot of things, have, you know, tenants getting arrested, right? Like we don't want that. We don't have time for drama. We are busy people. We want to be living our best lives, not dealing with those kind of things. And the best way to avoid that is to be investing in these B class areas. Um, the next thing that's really important here is also there's a higher probability of rent and value appreciation, right? Which is how we make money. Um, as rents go up, the longer that you own these properties, the rents are going to be going up. You're going to be making more cash flow every single month, and the value is also going to be going up as well, right? Um, and the last thing is that the asset management is only going to take a few hours a week and can be done anywhere in the world. Now, for those of you that are working full time, this idea that asset management can take place anywhere in the world might be a little bit, you know, far out from where you're at currently. But maybe think about, um, you know, you can still continue to work your nine to five job or a career that you love. Um, but still handle asset management a few hours a week. I think we'd all agree that we have a few hours a week if we had this you know, portfolio that was really dialed in. Okay, so next. So why would one consider investing out of state? So as mentioned, we uh, come from the Pacific Northwest. Um, for the first actually, gosh, eight years of investing, all of our acquisitions were happening locally until we determined that one, we wanted some location diversification. I did not want to own um, our entire portfolio in one geographic market. Um, in case something happened in the Pacific Northwest, I didn't want to have all of my eggs in one basket. So I like the location diversification of investing out of state. Number two, the location independence. We found that when we had properties locally, it was pretty easy for you know, particularly my husband to say, okay, well, let me go to the property and find out, you know, what's happening, meaning like there's a repair call or something is going on. It was a little bit too easy for us to just go buy the properties. Well, when it's a flight away, you don't have that option, right? So location independence comes with investing out of state, meaning you can truly live anywhere and then own properties wherever it makes sense. Uh, and then number three, as I had already alluded to, it's more hands-off. So you are relying on remote and local boots on the ground teams to these properties in order to facilitate the operations, of course, you know, find tenants and, um, you know, handle everything operationally. So it allows you to be more hands off. Number four, we also found that there's a potential for higher returns. So because we were, of course, you know, living in the Pacific Northwest, the returns, uh, when we first got started in 2007, 8, 9, returns were not great. In the Great Recession, everything was a deal. So we bought as much real estate as we possibly could. And then as the market improved, the cap rate went down and the returns just weren't there. But we were able to very quickly find much higher and better returns out of state. Uh, the next thing too, and this is again specific to where we were living in the Pacific Northwest is we could find nicer, newer properties out of state. And when we get to the case of the examples, I'll kind of show you what that looks like. But we were able to find a lot of, you know, brick, uh, late 90s build apartment complexes that would be maybe uh, an eight or a 10 unit would cost the same as a 1950s duplex that required full renovation in the Pacific Northwest. Right. So we were able to find nicer, newer properties. Uh, we were also able to discover untapped markets, meaning and I'm going to give you a framework for how you can do that as well. Um, but markets where not every other investor was talking about. And so we were able to get in uh, just to kind of give you some uh, numbers here. 
Um, some properties built in the 90s where we were buying them at 50,000 a door, they're now trading for 125,000 or 150,000 a door, right? So really exciting when you can get into untapped markets and kind of ride that wave. All right, but so the big question though, once we had made the decision to invest out of state was where? <laughs> what, you know, we'd only ever lived in the Pacific Northwest. Where should we consider investing out of state? So I'm a little bit of a data nerd, a researcher. And so I started kind of building a framework for determining uh, the answer to this question, which is where. So for the three steps to investing out of state, uh, number one, first, you need to know what you're looking for, which is creating your buy box. I see a lot of investors skip this step and they just kind of take the shotgun approach and start looking in other markets. And then, you know, lo and behold, they they find themselves, you know, owning uh, older properties or properties in a not so nice area, properties that don't necessarily uh, meet their end goal. And so first, you need to create a buy box meaning what types of properties are you after? Um, really, what types of assets do you want to own? What is your minimum cash flow per unit? Uh, and then go seek out market where those deals can be found. So we don't have time today to cover creating a buy box, um, but I do have a lot of videos like on YouTube and you guys can also email me. I have some trainings and things that I'm happy to kind of walk you guys through what this looks like. Okay, so then uh, once you have your buy box and you need to figure out the where to invest, and then you need to build that team for sourcing deals and managing the properties. Okay, so finding markets. Well, the first thing that I did is I decided to look at all of the major the major uh, metropolitan cities with high population growth. Um, and this is pretty easy to do. Um, I also like to reference, uh, for example, like the the U-Haul has a report, an annual report that they do, which shows where the population migration is heading, right? So you guys can Google these things, um, you know, find these reports and kind of start there. Um, the FRED website, that's a federal government website, is fantastic for this data. I feel like it's the most trusted resource out there. Uh, you just have to kind of learn how to navigate it. It's not, it's not very uh, user-friendly but this is a great way to search the major cities and look for cities that have the population growth. But the thing is, what I found, I'll give you an example, um, Nashville, Tennessee, massive population growth over the last couple of years, but the cap rates in Nashville are actually quite low. So what you need to do is then you need to research the submarkets. I like to research within a one hour radius and I have a minimum population size of 50,000. Okay, so I avoid the smaller rural towns uh, mostly because there's not typically, you know, a lot of job opportunities um, and, you know, job opportunities really drive the market. Obviously, uh, a lot of times you have, you know, not that many contractors, not many property managers, you don't have a whole lot of choices. So I would recommend that as you're doing your research, look for submarkets uh, within the one hour radius. You can also pull a half hour radius uh, with a minimum population of 50,000. Um, I also like to be within a one hour uh, commute to an international airport. Okay, so this is gonna be really, really important. Again, as you're looking for areas where you're gonna get rent appreciation and value appreciation. So Google is great for this, right? So go to Google Maps, um, you know, you, maybe it'll it'll take about an hour or so of research um, as you're getting through here, but it's, it's pretty easy to do. Okay, and then the next thing, once you have uh, located some of these submarkets, 
then you want to start researching the crime stats, the historical rent appreciation, and then also the average household income. Now, the reason why the average household income, uh, I think the other two are probably self-explanatory, but the average household income is going to dictate how much you can charge for rent, right? So uh, I would say I like to stay in that like 60,000 or higher. I mean, of course, we're talking a lot about Midwest markets. Um, I tend to avoid neighborhoods that are, you know, I mean, I, sometimes I even see 25, 30,000, right? It's going to be harder to find, again, those B-class areas, get the higher rents uh, and rent appreciation in these lower income areas. Um, so a couple of websites here that you can reference. Um, so Door Profit is great for this. This is the software company uh, that I've co-founded. Uh, by the way, it's totally free. You guys can go to the website, start searching the numbers, type in addresses, use it um, to really do a lot of research there. Fred is a great website as well, uh, referring back to that. And then also the Department of Numbers. So you can click on the states, uh, you can click on submarkets, and you can find a lot of information again around the average household income. You can look at the job growth. Job growth is really important to me when I'm doing my analysis. Um, and you can really kind of start to hone in some of these markets. Uh, for me, these submarkets must have appreciation upside and cash flow. So I think that there's kind of um, this idea that when investing, in, especially in the Midwest, that there's no appreciation. Now that has not been my experience at all. And actually, uh, if anything, we're probably getting more appreciation because we are doing this research ahead of time and getting into these markets before anyone else. And so when you can spend a little bit of time really strategically choosing your markets, you're going to benefit from that, right? So how you will kind of determine that is you're going to have to start analyzing some deals. So pick your major city, research the submarkets, hone in the submarkets. I would not go maybe beyond like two or three submarkets. And then I would start analyzing deals. Ideally, you get through 100 deals analyzed, five deals a day, five days a week. So that's basically 30 days of analysis. And then you'll really start to get a good idea of that market. Okay, so, uh, oh, also, I also look for average two once two bed, one bath unit rents to be around $800 a month. So there are fixed costs with owning real estate. Of course, we've got property taxes, we've got insurance, we've got, um, you know, all, all of the things, utilities, right? And so the rents need to be at a certain level in order to actually cash flow well. So my minimum is $800 a month. Now, will I buy a property that is, uh, maybe the rents are at 600, but they should be 900 absolutely all day long, right? So some of this is on pro forma, but if I see rents at, you know, in some of the markets that we're looking at, you know, rents might be like maximum 650, um, that's not gonna cash flow well enough for me to make that investment, right? So, so something to consider there. I like the, uh, the website Zumper, Zumper.com. You can type it. It's a little hard to, to uh, get to this market research page. If you go in actually into Google and do like the Zumper and then uh, submarket report, then it'll show you. And actually, I have some screenshots here in the next couple of slides. It'll show you what the average rents are for studios, one ones, and two ones. Okay, so let me give you guys uh, some case studies here. So this is uh, on the Fred website here, it's referenced here. Uh, this is Clarksville, Tennessee. So I'm actually taking you guys through the entire process that I just described on the last screen. So I started with Nashville, Tennessee, very high population growth, 
I had gone to Nashville and it was in 2016. And at the time, Nashville had the most cranes of any city in the entire United States. A lot of development happening in Nashville, but I just found that the cap rates were too low, um, too much attention already. So I did exactly as I described to you guys in the last slide. And then I found this uh, city called Clarksville, Tennessee that had a population of 280,000. Okay, so it's a pretty big city. It's about 45 minutes outside of Nashville. Now look at this graph. What do we notice about this graph? What is happening with the population? Massive population growth. Even as you're, you're seeing here, we've got good growth during recessions as well. So uh, the average rate of growth here is about 3% since 2009. Very, very consistent. And I wanna show you the opposite. <laughs> So case study, this is Detroit, Michigan. Okay. And sometimes we see this. Look at what has happened with the population in Detroit, Michigan, right? They've actually lost 1 million residents over 52 years. Okay. So let me know in the chat, would you rather, would you rather invest in a city that is growing in population or declining in population? Let me know. By the way, there's really cheap properties in Detroit. <laughs> you can buy you can buy a single family house for I think 10, 11,000. <laughs> okay. Mike says growing. Jonathan, definitely growing. Absolutely. Andy, I see your question. We're going to cover that at the end. So I I, I want to make sure that you know that I'm acknowledging your question. We're going to talk about that at the end. Cool. All right. So let's stay on Clarksville. So here is the Zumper report. This is the market summary. This is for rents, Clarksville, Tennessee. Median rent, we like this. This is for two bed, one baths, 1258. 23% year over year change. This is good. This is green light. We are really liking this rent appreciation. Okay, so now we're gonna jump to the Department of Numbers website. So this is the real median household income for Clarksville, Tennessee. Okay, so let's look at the US average, 69,717. One year change, oop, it went down a little bit. Three year change plus... 4.3. So, okay. So that's the U S average Tennessee. We can see a little bit lower than the U S average when you're changed down a little bit, three year change up though, higher than the U S average. And then let's look at Clarksville. Okay. 59,255 one year change. It's actually increased even though the U S average has gone down three year change plus 7%. Wow. Right. Almost double the U S average. We are liking this. Okay, so uh, that's what I look for in these out-of-state markets. Now I wanna talk about building an out-of-state investment team. So once you've identified a sub-market, now you're gonna need a team, right? You're gonna need people to help you get into this market and manage these properties. All right, so number one is you're gonna need an investment-focused agent. Why do you think I say investment-focused and not just real estate agent? Let me know in the chat. Why would I say investment-focused and not? Is every agent, an agent that can help you get into investment properties? What do we think? Let me know. Yes or no? Yeah. Yep. So very important. Yeah. So uh, understand the business of investing. Some agents specialize in just getting people into forever homes. 100% right, Mike. They will be looking at different properties. <laughs> yes, Jonathan. I look at it like you're almost speaking a different language. The language of investment real estate is very different than to what Mike said, getting people into forever homes, right? 
agents that are used to doing residential, they are going to be talking about, let's see, school districts and neighborhoods and locations to parks and things that, of course, an owner occupant would value and find important. But when we're looking at investment real estate, we're going to be asking about, well, what's the rent appreciation in the area? Is it a desirable area for tenants to live in? Um, what's the average cap rate, right? Again, very, very different language. So we want to find an investment-focused agent. So a couple of different ways that you can find these investment-focused agents. One, uh, referrals from other investors, right? So uh, if you find an investor that is investing in a market that you want to be in, ask them who they're working with. Uh, the number two, uh, sometimes we go on realtor.com and I will select multifamily filter. And then uh, I or my team will cold call agents and we'll start asking them questions about that market until we find somebody that's that maybe uh, a residential agent that also does commercial or investments. Uh, Crexy is another one that's pretty much just all commercial properties. And then LoopNet, right? So Crexy and LoopNet are pretty much uh, websites where you can find commercial properties. All right. So number two, you're going to need a property manager. Now, in my opinion, the property manager is actually more important than the real estate agent. Why do you guys think that is? Why would a property manager be more important than the agent and the agent, you know, their job is to help you find deals, right? And maybe in some ways learn about the market a little bit. Why would we prioritize the property manager? We know in the chat, I know I'm making you guys do some work today. <laughs> All right, so the property manager, is yeah i love that. mike spot on mike they are overseeing your monies yes and then john you can easily switch out realtors more easily than a property manager yeah absolutely and jonathan they're going to save you time if they actually handle the problems for you well jonathan we're only going to be working with property managers that handle the problems for us but yes absolutely right so these property managers they're going to take the role of operations for the property right they're going to find the tenants they're going to, um, we actually only hire property managers that also do project manage because the most of the property, most properties that we buy are value add, meaning they are going to experience some level of renovation in order to get higher rents and have the value increased, right? So we're looking for very specific property managers. Um, so how you find the right property manager for you, I actually have a document called 35 questions to ask a property manager. If anyone's interested, shoot me an email. I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, referrals is great. Another one is Google. Uh, we interview at least four property managers for any deal that we are looking at in a particular market. Um, so when I say we, it's my husband and I. So I uh, run point in acquisitions, he's our asset manager. And so he's talking to four different property managers, getting their opinions on rents, on strategy, on the area. Cause right, what, what's the real estate agent gonna say? The agent's gonna say, yeah, this is a pretty good area where they're somewhat limited by, uh, you know, the, the rules of engagement, if you will, as an agent of what they can say about a neighborhood. But the property manager, they're going to give you the truth, right? Um, I had a 36 unit in Corpus Christi that I got from an agent, supposed to be the best deal ever, called four property managers. All four told me that they do not go to that area of town. <laughs> they said, not only will we not uh, manage that property for you, we don't even go to that area of town, right? Do you guys think I bought that deal? Yes or no? <laughs> Let me know. Yeah, John's like, no, no. Okay, so number two, lenders, right? Uh, so I like to take lenders with me. Um, so we are pretty much buying commercial properties. 
most commercial lenders can lend anywhere in the country. Um, but if you're looking at residential properties, um, I would recommend working with a, especially if you're doing out of state and you're looking at different states, I would recommend working with a lender that is licensed in multiple states. So the lender that uh, we work with on the residential side of my group is licensed in 44 states. So uh, an investor can be shopping in Tennessee and they can take that pre-qual and pre-approval to Michigan or Missouri and vice versa. Okay, so how you find these lenders, uh, I would recommend by referral. So uh, again, either commercial or the uh, conventional residential side. All right, so next, a uh, uh, question that we get a lot is how do you find contractors? Uh, this is a big one. So um, we, again, as mentioned, we do a lot of value add strategy. I think we have maybe 12 renovations happening this month uh, right now. And uh, the contractors, we typically source through our property managers. Um, and then our property managers are acting as our project manager, right? So we pay them, uh, usually it's a percentage of the bid to go out every single week, send us photos, uh, give us lean releases. The contractors are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then we pay the contractors or they pay the contractors from there. Um, so yeah, so referrals is another good one um, and referrals specifically from the agent, the property manager. So pretty easy. Um, insurance is another one. Um, same thing, I work with an insurance broker that is licensed in most, actually I work with two insurance brokers um, and they pretty much cover the entire United States. And so same thing there uh, for insurance, we would recommend um, asking for referrals. Sounds like you all have a great group here. So, you know, I'm sure John would be a resource as well. So as you guys are like, okay, I need, you know, insurance or lenders, um, I'm sure that you guys have kind of a subgroup where you can share contacts. Uh, All right. Jennifer, I had a quick Thanks, question John. on the previous uh, slide. Yes. Um, property managers seem pretty pivotal to the whole. Um, They're paramount. Absolutely. Right. And yes. and so how do you, how do you uh, make sure you vet the right one? Mm -hmm. um, and you said there's a list of questions you ask your property managers. Yes. Um, and And I guess that's, is that the crux of how you vet your property managers um, or, you know, there's referrals as well. Uh, what what uh, tips do you have for that? Yeah, I think most importantly with the property managers, um, it's really important to know what their team size is. Um, I do not like to work with, you know, kind of one man shows. I think that they would get burned out very, very easily. I like to know how long they've been in business. I like to know what types of properties they manage. So for example, um, I mean, there's some property management companies that they specialize in like section eight, you know, very kind of low income types of rentals, and that's not going to be the right property manager for us. Um, and then on the flip side of that, there's some types of property managers that they do single family houses, a class, and that's more their style. And so uh, we just ask a lot of questions. Um, the other thing is I want to know that they know their market really well. Um, so I will ask them um, some questions such as like, uh, how long is it taking for an average make ready? What does the average make ready cost? Uh, what would you say is the average lease up time? Um, we're looking for answers that are going to be, you know, like for us, the average lease up time is about 10 days. That's from the time that it's starting to start marketing to the lease sign, right? It's tenant sometimes move in, you know, mid month or, you know, what, what have you. Um, and then also what is their communication style? Um, so, you know, do they prefer to be communicated via text, email, phone? 
Um, and then sometimes we'll do kind of a test. We'll ask them to actually drive by the property and give us an analysis on what they think their market rent would be. And then also what they think, um, like, you know, the approach should be, should we go in and um, let's say just do increases on the month to month tenants and then leave the condition as is and just kind of turn, um, you know, the rent increases up from that way. Or should we get some of the, ten the lower paying tenants out, remodel those units and then go for the higher rents. And, and so we, we kind of want to make sure that values are aligned. Um, and then the last piece is, will they manage the renovation for us as our project manager? Um, so I would say it's about 50, 50, uh, about 50% of the property managers that we talk to do not offer that service. And they say, nope, that's on you as the investor. You need to find your own contractor. You need to handle that. Once these units are turned, then turn it over to us and we'll, um, you know, we'll market them, of course. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's pretty much how it is. We like to have a bench as well. So for every property manager that we hire, we like to have somebody else that's kind of, you know, ready and willing to step in should that relationship not work out. In 16 years of doing this, we have had to fire three property managers. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Yeah, I hope that helps. Yep. Excellent. It also kind of depends on the types of properties you're buying for us as well. Um, all right, so my favorite types of properties, uh, one, I, I really like, you know, eight plus units, 1960s and newer, brick, mostly two ones. And by the way, we've owned um, a, a, a variety of different types of properties, and we found this to be the most profitable, um, including 100 plus unit conflict, right? right? So we just keep coming back to this low friction, uh, high cash flowing easy assets. Now here's why. Number one is they're easier to finance than residential. So residential, I, I categorize that as like the one to four units, right? Where you're typically getting a conventional loan. Commercial is a lot easier to finance. It's going to be a lot less uh, brain damage. That's kind of what I call it. There's a lot of paperwork involved in getting these residential conventional loans and you have to close in your own name, right? Whereas of course with these, you can get LLCs. Uh, number two, if there's no payroll and there's no people, uh, again, we have some big complexes and we've got payroll and people and all the things that have to be managed and buildings pretty much just like this that, that is shown to the left here. Again, very, very easy, very easy to manage. You've got no pools, no playgrounds, no dog parks. Very, very easy. Uh, they're typically too big for the solo investor and they're too small for the syndicator. So it's kind of this little niche in the middle that I find often gets passed up. And so this is my favorite type of property. We can typically go in, um, obviously they're mostly mom and pop operators. So I'll be honest, sometimes their financials are a little questionable. We'll get Excel, we'll get chicken scratch on paper with their financials. We kind of have to work through that, of course, but we can go in and get some really great deals because it's typically mismanaged. And so we can come in, stabilize and maybe depending on how many unit turns and the size of the building, Maybe we can stabilize in like 90 to 180 days. And then it's just cash flow from there. Is this making sense? Do you guys have questions about this? I think um, my recommendation though for uh, newer investors doing their first out-of-state deal would be to go with a residential two to three or four units to start and then move into these types of properties. 
Okay, um, so now I wanna get into case studies. Again, um, this is illustrative purposes only. Um, again, these are not for sale. I'm not asking anyone to invest in these. I just really wanna show you guys and give you an idea of what types of properties are out there. So this is an eight unit in Clarksville, Tennessee. I picked this one up. This is a couple of years ago. This is uh, 2019 on this one. So my purchase price for this eight unit, by the way, it was built in 1997. Uh, it's a very vanilla, this is not a sexy building. This is very, very simple, but again, no payroll, no pet parks, no pools. Very, very simple, very easy. Okay, so 500,000, did a 1031 exchange on this one. Their rental income is about 81,000. The net, this is that the parentheses there, that's how much we actually make in cash flow after expenses, about 24,000. Appreciation though, in the 36 months, it's 500K. Okay, so this building has doubled in value in about 36 months because we discovered Clarksville when no one else was investing there. Okay, so the tax benefits, this is actually just the first year to cost segregation on this, we're off 125,000 in a 25% tax bracket. That's a tax savings, an actual tax savings of $31,000. Now, and we're a real estate professional designation. So I wanna point out that these tax savings may or may not uh, you know, immediately benefit you unless you have you know, a spouse or you know, what, what have you that's a real estate professional designation. So you might have to carry this forward. But total in 36 months, 634,000, basically 635,000, right? So boring little eightplex, Clarksville, Tennessee, very, very um, you know, profitable on this one. Very easy. We like never hear about this one. So pretty cool there. Here's another one, this is a six unit. Uh, purchase price on this one was is 415. My investment was zero. So, I, and by the way, um, I'm not choosing to show you any like unicorn deals that I have a lot of those, but any deals that would be like incredibly difficult to replicate because I want this. I want you to see yourselves in these properties, buying these properties because if I can do it, you can too. So I just wanted to point that out. Okay, so purchase price 415. This is an off-market deal brought to me by my investor agent in Clarksville. Uh, so 415, my investment was zero. I leveraged a private lender for the purchase price and the renovation. I paid them off with the refinance. And then we own this 100%, which is, by the way, my favorite strategy is leverage private lender, use their money for the acquisition, do your implement your value add strategy, refinance them out on 100% of the asset. Okay, I see some questions coming in and I'm gonna get to these really quick. Uh, do you have any sources of active income? Yeah, our business income. Otherwise, what did you do with those 225,000 of passive losses? Yes, as much as we have 10 businesses uh, between three of us, so the, the real estate helps. Uh, what year were these purchased? Uh, Jonathan, the last one I think I mentioned, it was, that was 2019. This one, um, so it's 2021. I've, I've pulled some of the recent deals because I want this again. I don't want, like, I, sometimes I see people that they bring deals from like, you know, 10, 13, 20 years ago. <laughs> it's just not helpful to anyone. So no, these were all within the last, I think like three years that, I, that I'm showing you guys today. Okay, so my investment is zero, again, because of the private lender. Rental income on this one is about 60,000. The net is 19K. Appreciation, 335,000. Now, the reason why you see appreciation like this in such a short period of time is because these are commercial properties that we increase the NOI 
And the value is based on the cap rate in the market. So you can control the value and force appreciation with multifamily properties. And you can't do that on the residential side because on the residential side, they need comparable sales. Okay, so then the tax benefits on this one, this is first year too, by the way, 68K, tax savings, 17K. So the total on this one in 24 months, and by the way, no money, low bars, uh, about 407,000. And, and uh, Jennifer, those the total uh, line that you indicate here, uh, it's not as if you liquidated the asset, correct? You're still holding the asset. Absolutely. We only, yeah, so we buy and hold. Yep. So this includes everything. It's the tax, the, the, not this number. It's the 17K plus the 335 plus the 19. Yep. Yeah. But if we're doing like an apples to apples comparison to like, say, stock, you bought it for, you know, 417. Now it's worth, you know, seven, whatever that is. Plus you're getting dividends plus the tax. So yeah, so that's added up, if that makes sense. Cool. Okay. Uh, and then next, here's another one. This is a little uh, seven unit in Michigan. Purchase price 775. My investment zero. This was another 1031 exchange. Rental income on this one, 75K, net 24K, appreciation 141. We've actually um, uh, not really renovated this. We just went in, I think the rents were uh, maybe 750. And then we, and they were all month to month because it was a mom and pop, kind of didn't really know what they were doing. And we, we brought all the rents up to about uh, yeah, like 900, I think. Tax benefits first year, 105,000, 26K net. So total in 24 months of ownership on this one is 241. Now the numbers on this one will be much better. The fair market rents are actually 1,200. We just haven't gotten around to doing um, the renovations yet because the tenants just stayed. Um, okay, so Mike, do you think it's necessary to have real estate designation to get the most from these deals? Um, yes and no. Well, so to answer your question, to get the most out of these deals, yeah. I mean, for a lot of you, I know, you know, most of you, I, or maybe all of you are working, you know, full time. And I would expect that you all have pretty high salaries, right? Can you see though, how, let's say if you have a spouse that is real estate professional designation, you're able to write off this like 105,000 off of your active income. Okay. Um, but if you're not, if you're just classified as an active investor, you can only get the tax benefits of 25K. The rest, you don't lose the rest though, right? So the rest is going to bank for a future event, right? So you're not going to lose it. You just can't get it all in the same year um, like you would if with real estate professional designation. Um, Jonathan, you also use Zumper to estimate how much rent you should charge. Uh, yeah, so we use Zumper. Um, we kind of do some of our own research as well. We use Zumper, Door Profit, and then we talk to, as mentioned, like three or four property managers. Okay, uh, and then Michael, yep, it can. And, and by the way, guys, I've been reps for sixteen years, so I can't even the to comment on um, taxes for non reps. <laughs> I don't know. So thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's, you can offset other passive income from your other properties. Passive losses can offset. Yeah, it's just up to 25000 for all properties if you're not reps. All right. Uh, and then here's another one. Um, this one we've had for 14 months. It's a 12 unit in Kentucky. Purchase price, $1,085,000. My investment was zero. Uh, brought in a JV partner for the down payment. So uh, 
found the deal where the asset managers, acquisitions, all of the things JV Partner brought the investment, the down payment. So the rental income on this one, 172,800, 38K net, appreciation 500K, because we got this um, pretty significantly undervalue um, because the rents were low. And so we have been renovating and turning every single unit. The year one tax benefits, uh, 277,000, we cost segregation on this. So it's 69K on this one. Okay, so total in 14 months, 607. And by the way, this is the entire property not split by partners, okay? So this is just, I don't, I don't wanna confuse you guys on that. Uh, cool, okay, moving on. Oh, and then also I wanted to just share a couple stories. If you're thinking, okay, great, Jennifer, this sounds good for you, but you're in real estate, you've been in real estate forever. I, I want to, anyone that maybe is having some limiting beliefs creep in, I just want to share you with you a couple of people that I've worked with that are crushing it. Uh, so this is Jake and Katie in Spokane. Both of them work full-time too, by the way, guys. Uh, so we helped them expand into Tennessee. They had a couple of duplexes in Spokane, Washington. And then they went on to acquire 24 units in 10 months. Okay, so again, full-time. And then um, they were recently featured on the Bigger Pockets podcast. So if you guys search... Uh, Jake Radowick, he was on Bigger Pockets if you want some more inspiration. And by the way, they are in like their late 20s. So for those of you maybe that are younger thinking, I can't do this, guys, you can absolutely do it like Jake and Katie did. Um, and then this is uh, Cassie and Patrick Green. They were actually doing short-term rentals um, and they were they were making pretty good money on a short-term rental that they had in Surprise, Arizona and thinking that that's what they needed to do on the next one. But Cassie was getting completely burned out with all of the customer service. So, you know, tenants coming in saying the Wi-Fi wasn't working and the pool's not hot enough and all the things. So uh, I suggested that she get into apartments. And then within six months, so she totally said, okay, no more short-term rentals. Within six months, they close up a 16 unit in Missouri and then a 46 unit in Tennessee. And then what's really cool, and this one just closed in, uh, let's say there's like September. So their 46 unit guys appraised for $600,000 over the contract price. And then she used my strategy with the private lender. So she actually found a private lender for the down payment to buy this thing. So pretty cool. Uh, and then um, for those of you who are maybe feeling like, gosh, I'm late to the game, uh, Randy and Bevan, they are, uh, you know, they've got teenagers, they're in um, their 50s. They sold a property management business and then we helped them go from zero rentals to 70. Randy was like, I got to catch up. <laughs> so uh, 71, and by the way, this is syndication to guys. Like I know, you know, if you're thinking this is syndication, that's not very impressive. It is not, right? So this is in nine months. So now they own properties in Indiana, Missouri, and Wisconsin, which is pretty cool. So, okay, uh, we're getting close on time and I want to make sure we get to answer any questions. So common mistakes. Number one is not doing proper due diligence. Okay, so anything and everything that you get uh, numbers-wise, like financials, you need to make sure that you verify. So I've seen many investors that, actually a friend of mine bought an 18 unit in Oklahoma City and uh, the seller gave him a P&L and said that the, I don't remember the exact figure, so that the utilities were, you know, let's say a couple hundred dollars a month. He did not ask for tax returns and then he did also not call the utility company and came to found out it was like, I don't know, it's like a thousand dollars a month, right? So his cash flow was significantly less than what he was expecting. So always do proper due diligence. Um, another mistake that I see, uh, this is really common without estate investing is buying in high crime neighborhoods. 
So uh, again, another investor, I'm coaching them out of this deal. Uh, they bought a couple of uh, duplexes in Memphis that were really cheap. Rents were $325 a month. Okay. They were told they could get $800 a month. They did not verify this with the property manager. They waited to call the property manager until after closing, only to find out that the max rents were 500 right? So stay out of the high crime neighborhoods. Door Profit is going to help you do that. So you can type in any property address and it's going to give you a crime score in that neighborhood. Uh, and then, oh, I already said this. Number three is waiting until after closing to contact property management companies. You would be surprised at how many investors do this. Do not wait until after closing to contact property management companies. They're going to tell you the truth about the area and the property. Uh, number four, I've also seen some investors over renovate for the area. So coming from the Pacific Northwest, even with our properties, we still have like seven or eight properties left in Washington. Uh, we pretty much do 2CM granite everywhere. That's just common. That's expected in Washington. Uh, in Tennessee, they don't even use granite in like million dollar homes, right? So don't over-renovate. Don't spend more than what is necessary for the tenants in that area. The property manager is going to help you out with that. Uh, and then number five is don't get stuck in analysis paralysis. The fear of making mistakes. Um, regardless, you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes too all the time. Um, they're just not catastrophic mistakes, right? And so the best way to not make the mistakes is to do a lot of deal analysis and then do the proper due diligence. Um, and then number six is trying to self-manage from afar or micromanaging the local team. I don't see that that is going very well. So definitely, um, there's been a couple of investors in our community that have attempted to self-manage from afar, and I've never seen it work out. <laughs> so my suggestion is just budget for the property manager and hire them. Uh, and then number seven is allowing those non-performing property managers, kind of what John had asked a, a couple of slides ago. Uh, so if you have a non-performing property manager, I think maybe uh, Mike or, or Jonathan even asked the question about like, you know, if the property manager handles the problems for you, they're not handling the problems for you, they're the wrong property manager, fire them immediately. Do not allow non-performing property managers. Okay, so uh, acquisitions on autopilot. So for those of you that are still wondering, okay, well, how do you get deals and how do you do this? And this is us in Rome. Uh, so before last, we spent about 30 days exploring Italy. Uh, so number one is, so I have team and they research markets. Okay, so I built the framework that I shared with you guys today. By the way, you guys can all do this on your own. You don't have to build a team. It's just, you know, your time. Uh, my team researches the markets. Then they reach out to the agents. I actually have one person on my team that all she does is reach out to agents um, all the time and interview them. And then the agents send us deals. I actually have the agents go to my website and I've had a developer develop a calculator the agent just sends the inputs and then the then it basically calculates auto calculate for us and then the door and then we also have the software so door profit analyzes every listed property in the markets that we're currently in and then filters by potential return on investment so this is how um i would say some days maybe we get like 10 deals a day other days maybe it's like five um but there's a lot of deals that come through because we make it really simple and easy for these investor agents to get deals in front of us and, and I know this is really unique. And so I'm, you know, probably a lot of you haven't thought about this before or haven't heard of this, um, but this is the best way that we figured out to like get acquisitions on autopilot. And then as far as operations go, 
um, this is my husband's role. So the property managers act as project managers. So they're managing the contractors, managing the make readies, all the things. And then he is just overseeing them. And my husband has a Tuesday, it's his weekly call to each property manager that we work with. Some of them obviously have multiple properties under them of ours. Uh, they have a weekly call during the stabilization period. So the stabilization period is pretty much getting the building to like, call it maybe like 93% occupancy and cash flowing. Okay. So until we reach that, they're going to hear from us every single week. Hear from us, my husband, every single week. And then we have a, a bookkeeper and they're going to produce the monthly P&L. So they go through all of the operating statements, put everything into QuickBooks, and then they send a P&L uh, typically by like the 15th of the month. And then we close the books on the 20th. And then my husband and I have a weekly money meeting. And we say, how much money are we making? Is there, do we need to reduce any expenses? Is there opportunities for increasing income? I bring the properties that I want to write offers on or have already written offers on. And then we go through the kind of the handoff from the acquisitions over to operations. And we do this every single Friday at 11 a.m. So we know exactly where we're at with all things. Okay. I know that was a little bit of a speed approach. Um, if you guys have questions, uh, we'll offer questions right now. Um, John, I don't know if we have time constraints, but if you guys have specific questions as well and you have to jump or you have to get back to, back to work, you guys can send me an email. And then these are the two websites. Um, no, I encourage everyone to ask their questions now. I don't have a time constraint. Um, if people need to jump for meetings, uh, they're welcome to do so. But please uh, go ahead and ask your questions and then Jennifer can uh, answer them. Um, so there's yeah. one question from Andy. Yes, Andy, thank you. This is the time to get back to your question. Okay, so if people do not pay their rent, what do we do? So I'll be honest, um, I don't. we don't do anything. The property manager does their part. Now, Andy, we have strategically chosen markets where we can enforce our lease agreement. So the lease agreement dictates what we can do for tenants that do not pay. So typically, and we're in, you know, like nine different markets. So every market's a little bit different, but typically uh, as soon as that rent does not come in, the property manager reaches out to the tenant and posts like whether it's a three-day pay or vacate or five-day pay, pay or vacate um, on the door immediately. And then we pretty much, uh, we can follow that time period. And then if there's no response or we haven't done like a workout, then the eviction is filed. So in most of the state that we're investing in, um, if we get to the point where we have to go through the eviction, the evictions move very quickly. Um, so again, you know, we're, we're typically investing in very landlord-friendly markets. Um, we have not had that many evictions. Um, our property managers are typically very successful in either getting these tenants out or getting them to pay. Uh, we also, uh, we've, we've drawn a line and we send any and every tenant that owes us money to collections. Now, like every investor maybe has a different opinion on that, but that is our opinion. The property managers know uh, that they're going to send tenants to collections or balances owed. Right. So we, of course, have to follow the, the court, you know, if there's an eviction, things like that, the court ruling on that. Um, but that's how we handle if tenants do not pay. Um, we maintain a very high economic occupancy rate, which is meaning like there's a, a person in a unit 
um, and then they're paying rent, right? Um, and the way that we do that is because when we have really nice properties, we are typically priced at like maybe 95% of fair market rent. So as mentioned early on, like the occupancy is very important to me. I want to maintain the highest occupancy that I can because vacancy is very expensive. And so uh, we do, when I say we, the property managers do a really fantastic job of screening these tenants. And then they will do anything in their power to make sure that they can kind of help. And just sometimes, um, like even during COVID, there was maybe a few tenants that needed some assistance and were able to get that uh, through like local nonprofits or um, things like that. So I hope that that answers. Uh, oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Awesome. Um, let's see. Okay, Jonathan has a question about getting private lenders. Boy, I could talk a long time about getting private lenders. I'm gonna give you a little Cliff Notes version. Um, my recommendation would be to start networking with people that either have a desire to invest in real estate, but don't have the time or the knowledge. And Jonathan, then you could bring to the table, the deal, the team, uh, the due diligence, all the acquisitions, you know, things like that. And then they're just bringing the capital. Um, there's a lot of people who would love an eight to 10% return on their money for doing nothing. And so that's what my private lenders enjoy. I give them typically, again, 8 to 10%. Um, we even have people in my community, um, and actually, and I've done some private lending as well, um, and they're getting like 15% right now as a private lender. So for some people, they feel like real estate's really risky and they don't want to do the things that we're talking about today, but they would love to get a really good return on their money. And typically, it's going to depend on the deal. They can get their money back, say, in like 12 to 24 months. So it's a really good option there. Um, and then, yeah, how you find them on um, friends and family. And then, you know, maybe networking. Again, it sounds like you guys have a really great community that John has put together. Um, so maybe there's some of you that would like, I would like to be more passive and be a private lender to anyone who's wanting to do what Jennifer's talking about today. Okay, uh, Ash K, do you provide a coaching guidance for someone who is new to out-of-state investing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can send me an email. We do have, well, actually we have two communities. Um, one is called Deal Pros Academy and it's kind of a monthly, uh, they literally, we've made it incredibly cheap. It's $97 a month where we focus more on the deal analysis and the due diligence side. Cause I see a lot of investors struggling with that. And then we have a 12 month mastermind program as well. So if you guys are, and again, I'm not here to pitch, like <laughs> if you're interested in learning about this, like absolutely you can send me an email. Um, but yeah, we do have options. I, I just love seeing people uh, really change their lives through real estate investing. And I love sharing. So you guys are an incredible audience and I'm, I'm so grateful to be here today. So thanks. Thanks again for the invite, John. Uh, I did have one final question, Jennifer. Sure. The market dynamics uh, that you're experiencing or you might be experiencing these days, um, maybe not because you're working with a lot of private, um, private lenders, but yes. the, the kind of the floating high-ish interest rates, do you see that affecting um, your business at all? Uh, yeah, so deal flow has gone down a bit, um, mostly because the values had held, right? And so um, when we're looking at getting, you know, commercial lending and, you know, the interest rates have gone from, say, 4% to 7%, it is, has, it is and has been more challenging to get these deals to pencil in the short term. But what, what I would invite investors to think about is the long-term benefit of getting into some of these properties that are a lower basis price, lower entry price, and then having that ability to refinance later. 
So because we have significant cash flow from our entire portfolio, we can deal with 24 months of a little bit of cash flow because of the you know short-term higher interest rate environment. And then we'll just refinance. So we've got like the, uh, the 12 unit that I shared that's under a bridge loan at 7% interest. And we're going to be able to refinance that probably next year, I think at like five. So the oh. cash flow is actually going to improve. Um, but to your point is, so I would say that some investors have actually held off on selling uh, their commercial properties because they have these 3% interest rates and they know that the cap rates are a little bit, you know, higher right now. And so they're not going to get the sale price. So I would say that the inventory has been most affected by these, at least in uh, the types of investing that we do. Um, so that's a little bit tricky, but I think that that's going to hopefully improve. We are seeing, um, I would say a lot of the inventory that is coming up is heavy value add. And so for most investors, that is not, especially investors that are looking out of state, that is not a strategy that's going to work for them, but that is pretty much our bread and butter. So we're able to get into some really good deals right now because other investors are like, well, it's the interest rates and this is a lot of work. But for us, it's really easy to get in and stabilize these. Got it. We had a few more questions come in. Sure. Um, if you want yeah. to get those. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So Jonathan asks, do private lenders often require payment in monthly installments or lump sum at the end once you refinance? Jonathan, this is an excellent question. Um, I have seen it done both ways. So I know some private lenders who are absolutely fine, uh, basically like accruing that monthly interest payment and instead taking it on the back end at the refinance. Um, they do tend to want a little bit of a higher interest rate for like waiting for that payment. Um, and then I see other investors that are really, uh, especially, you know, people that are, I would say maybe like retirees or a little bit used to like a CD with a, you know, in a bank. Um, they are looking more forward to those monthly installment payments. Um, so I think it just kind of depends, uh, but I've seen it done both ways. And I think it just, yeah, it kind of depends on per personal preference. Um, and then Michael, are you buying mostly commercial multi now? Yeah, we've pretty much only done commercial for, gosh, I would say like the last six, seven years or so. Um, now, if a great deal comes up and it's residential, absolutely, we will get into that. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not one to turn down a great deal. Uh, and then our latest thing is we, because we have a, a construction background, uh, we're going to do some development here, some build to rent um, on storage units, actually RV storage here in the Phoenix Metro. So that's um, our latest thing that we're getting into. Well, fantastic. I think uh, no one else has any questions. I want to thank you very right. much for your great presentation, Jennifer. My pleasure. I hope you all got a lot of value out of our time today. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, to learn more about investing out of state, feel free to reach out to Jennifer. Um, and she has her contact information there. We'll also include her contact information in the description for this episode as well. Uh, and thanks for investing and educating us on investing out of state. My pleasure. Quite a bit. My uh, pleasure. And again, thank you for the time out of your busy schedule to speak to our audience. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to this um, webinar as well as podcast on whichever platform you're using and make sure that we continue bringing you the best educational content. And thanks everyone. Until next time, keep learning to invest for generational wealth. Thanks. All right. Thanks everyone.